So tonight, we're finally really starting our attributes of God. We've done our introduction, we've looked at natural theology and scripture and how we know God and the existence of God. Uh, the nice thing about the attributes of God is that there's really not like a proper order you have to do them in. Like there are certain, certain theology classes if you were to take, you'd really need to start at a certain place and they would build on each other. But the attributes of God, you can pretty much do any order. So what's nice about that is if you ever have to miss a class uh, or even miss multiple classes, number one, I'm recording them from now on, so you should still be able to listen to them. But it's not like if you miss today and show up next week, you're off because it's, it's, they really can be taken as pieces. Of course, on the flip side, we're also going to look at all of the attributes are so interconnected. That's part of why you don't need, necessarily need an order because they're all connected so much in God. Um, that it's, it's impossible to talk about one without talking about multiple. And you'll see that today. We're going to have to just briefly talk about a lot of attributes today in order to talk about this one. And that's basically how it's always going to go. Uh, so today we are talking about God as spirit. Typically this is a good starting place, um, though, when you start talking about the attributes of God. And so before we do that, I just, I, 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 one of the things I, I wanted to get from this class is to get us to see that there are some concepts that we think are simple until we actually start to think about them. And I think spirit is one of them. How would you define a spirit? If someone came up to you and said, what is a spirit? What would you say? What is, what is a spirit? <laughs> sure. Well, sure. I'm, I'm not going to tell you you're right or wrong. Just give, give it your best shot. How would you define a spirit? <coughs> what are just some of the first things that come to your mind? Not material. Not material. Okay. Yeah. Yep. That's that's really good. That's a good place to start. Not material. How, do, how would you differentiate between something that's not material and something that doesn't exist at all? Well, it has to be spirit, yeah. I don't know, but whatever's in the middle, I would call that spirit. Yeah. Exactly. This, this is one of the big huge foundational differences between us and atheists and what's what we talked about in the existence of God is atheists just deny there is no such thing as spirit and then what happens is atheism works on what we call an empirical worldview which is they only believe in things that can be empirically tested so how do you prove to a person who says all things are empirically tested that there's a concept exists that isn't that can't be empirically tested. Now, we try to do that. Love cannot be empirically tested. As a matter of fact, the very proposition that all things must be empirically tested cannot be empirically tested, right? So there's a lot of problems with it, but it just goes to show that fundamental dynamic. And what happens for a lot of Christians is sometimes they'll get into a conversation with an atheist and they'll get stumped over this very question. You know, when they say, well, show me God, give me evidence. Well, he's, he's spirit, he's invisible. Like, what is a spirit and how does that differ from nothing at all? And we don't, you know, we don't really know how to answer that. And then it, we look stumped. Um, to give just a couple definitions, one of my favorite apologists, Greg Bonson, he was asked this very question in a debate. So he didn't have time to think about it. This was just his off-the-cuff answer. Uh, he defined a spirit as something not ex extended in space. Anything that has no spatial extension is spirit. Not exhaustive, but that's pretty good. Stephen Charnock is kind of the main guy I'm using for the attributes of class. He says it's a fine, immaterial substance, an active being that acts itself and other things. So it's an active, immaterial substance that is not only acts in and of itself, but has the ability to make other things act. A fine, immaterial Well, what's interesting, that's a great question, is, is light is actually material. We actually can see, under a microscope, we can actually see light. Now, there's in, what's funny about light is, in the, material, is in, the, in the science world, there's a debate over whether it's a particle or, um, or a wave. But, well, even if you can't see it, you can measure it empirically. You can measure the particles or wavelengths of light. It has an empirical measurement to it. So it, it's not necessarily something your eye catches. Yeah, 
But, but light is material. Believe it or not, light is material. Was it Nicodemus that he talked, or he talked to somebody about you can't see the spirit, but you can see the wind blow? Yep, um, yep, that's, hmm? So yeah, basically, this kind of fine, because fine is a hard word to define, but fine would describe things like light and wind and uh, breath, uh, things that are so thin they can't be seen, but they can be dispersed into huge spaces. Air is fine, light is fine, wind is fine. But obviously those things are all still empirically. So it's both fine and immaterial, and it has to be an active being. An active, immaterial being is how he defines a spirit. Great question. So what this means is that a, the, the, the immaterial substance has, the, has its own ability to make choices. So something else doesn't move it. It moves itself. That's what it means by it acts itself. It just with, within and of itself, it makes choices. But it also can move other things. So for example, you have a spirit inside of you. And your spirit is capable of moving itself and moving your body. Yep, so a spirit can move, it can make its own choices, but it can also cause other things, it can manipulate outside of itself. It's not stuck to itself. It can manipulate external things also. Right, yeah, God's Holy Spirit is an immaterial substance, but he was able to move waters, yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, not only a spirit, but Satan has a spirit. Yeah. He might have, like we have a spirit, but we also have a physical component. Satan probably also has a physical component. But yeah, Satan probably has a spiritual dimension to him. As a matter of fact, the Bible refers to him as a spirit a lot. Um, It juxtaposes, we have not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God. We have not. So yeah, Satan is absolutely a spiritual being but he may have a physical component as well. So he's not pure spirit. We're just like, we're not pure spirit. Yes, he was an angel. Yeah, he's an angel, yeah. So angels are spiritual beings, but they probably have a physical component to them as well. But they might not. They they, they can have one, uh, but even God can have one, right? Jesus, right? So in their original creation, I don't know if... If angels had a physical component or not, I would suspect probably not. They were probably just pure spiritual beings. Um, so what, what we found is even this, like, uh, the point is, there's, in a certain sense, I, I don't, I'm not trying to give you, like, a, uh, a definitive answer. I, all I want us to see is, we talked about how the attributes of God is going to be deep, and even just saying God is spirit. To, to many of us, you say that on a Sunday morning in passing, and we don't even blink. We don't pass an eye. Like, yeah, I get it. But if you really think about it, that's, that's a deep concept, that God is spirit. Like, how do we even define that? What's interesting is I like the way that uh, Bill and Betty both defined it as lacking something. So the first thing that comes to our minds when we try to define spirit is uh, a negation rather than a positive. So rather than saying this is what it is, the first thing you said was this is what it's not. It's not material, right? That's not a positive definition. That's negation. And what most theologians argue is that because we are finite creatures, because we have material brains, it's nearly impossible for us to perfectly conceptualize immaterial existence. So pretty much the only way that we can define spirit is through negation. We're not really, this is really the closest we can get to a kind of a positive presentation. In order for us to understand a spirit, we basically have to start with a concept and then chip away what it can't be, right? We define purely through negative. This is what a spirit is not. This is what a spirit is not. My favorite analogy is sculpting. Um, the, I, there's a joke that, who, who was it? Was it Michelangelo or Leonardo? Who was it that made the David statue? Michelangelo. I don't, I've never seen this proven. I've just heard this. So I don't know if this is a true story. But apparently... Someone met Michelangelo after they looked at the David statue. And like most people, you're just blown away at how you could carve something with so much detail, so much realism out of stone, out of marble. 
And someone just kind of in passing asked him, you know, like sometimes we ask questions, but we really don't, we're not looking for an answer. It's just more of a comment. Someone just in passing said, how did you make that? How did you make that? And allegedly he responded by saying, uh, anything that just, anything that didn't look like David, I removed. He had, I have this big stone in front of me and anything that didn't look like David, I removed it. You know, kind of as a joke, but that is what sculpting is, right? You, 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 you create something through negation. You just take things away. You never add to a sculpture. You only take things away. And that's kind of how we define God, not just with spirit. Almost any time we define God, we usually start with a corrupt concept and then we chip away. We typically define God more by what he isn't than by what he is because what he is is so hard to grasp and conceptualize. It's easier to grasp what he isn't and then deny it than it is to grasp what he is and assert it, right? That's just how big he is. So basically the definition of God, the definition of spirit boils down to just removing corrupt ideas. Just remove from your head whatever isn't God and then what's left over is God, right? That's, that's the closest we can come to defining these, these concepts. Oh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. We, we won't get in depth, but we're going to have a brief word about that. But I'm sorry, keep going. Yeah, in the book, in one of, I, I have a lot of resources I use for this class. I actually have too many. I don't have time to read all the ones I want to. But in the, the primary one I'm using of Stephen Charnock, uh, he talks about how one of the hardest places to get, but one of the greatest demonstrations of Christian maturity is when you get to the place where you can conceptualize God's spirit and not picture him. He said the goal is to not picture God. Anyway, and we'll talk, about, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But that's a great, great thought. So if I want to just briefly defend, how do we know that God is spirit? And we are going to have some biblical arguments, and then we're going to have some arguments from reason. Remember, that's what we talked about in our natural theology class. We know God not just through scripture, but also through creation and reason. One of the things that will shock most people is that depending on how you define a biblical argument, some people define those differently, we have very little biblical attestation to God being a spirit. That's something that just seems so natural. You've heard it a million times. You would think it's like all over the place, but in a sense, it really isn't. Uh, as a matter of fact, we really only have one teensy little verse in the entire Bible that positively asserts that God is a spirit. And it was already referenced. I think Betty referenced it. And it comes from John 4, 24, when Jesus is speaking with the woman at the well. And she's, he's basically telling her about the new covenant that's coming, and she said, you know, I, you know, she worships the God of the Jews, and they have to worship in a temple, and they have to worship in Jerusalem. The old covenant was very carnal, very physical bound. You needed physical lambs and physical blood, and it had to be in a physical place, in a physical temple. It was very carnal, and then Jesus says the new covenant's going to be different. It's not going to be a carnal worship. It's going to be spiritual worship, and that fits who God is. Why? Because he tells her God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So here we have Jesus affirming that God is spirit. He's not physical. He's not material. He is spiritual. And that's why spiritual worship is what pleases him. Uh, the book of Hebrews, right? A body you have not desired. Sacrifices you have not desired. He had a purpose and a reason for Old Testament sacrifices. But ultimately, sacrificing animals is not how we worship God because he is not a carnal, spiritual, embodied, physical thing. He's a spiritual person and so spirit worship is what he desires. Because he's spirit, he desires spiritual worship. But this is the only verse we have in the Bible that positively tells us explicitly that God is spirit. 
Now, we have some other argument by biblical verses that come very, very close, specifically the verses that tell us God is invisible, right? Uh, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Now, I mean, if we wanted to be really technical, like we were just talking with Marty, it's possible for things to be invisible and yet not be spiritual, necessarily, at least invisible to the naked eye. But I, I think that's being a little bit more technical and scientific than these verses are trying to get to. When these verses call God invisible, I think they're trying to say he's not material. He's unable to be seen. You can't, even if you, were to, even if you had a microscope, you couldn't see the particles of God or the waves of God the way we can see wavelengths in sound or wavelengths in light. God is beyond empiricism. He is invisible. He cannot be seen. And so really the only way to make sense of this is to consider him spirit because spirit is the only concept we have of something that is truly there. It really exists, but there's no way to see it. He is invisible. So really that's a positive presentation that he is um, Spirit. An interesting thing about the word for spirit, this probably maybe should have been the last slide, is in the Greek there's only one word for spirit, wind, and breath. Um, if, you were, if, you, if we read Greek, you would never see different words for this. You would, you would define them based on the context that it's in. And it's interesting, was also alluded to in John chapter 3, Jesus makes an amazing analogy between the spirit and the wind. And he tells Nicodemus, the spirit comes and goes, and you don't see him, but you see his effects. And he says, just like the wind, right? The wind comes and the wind goes, and you don't see the wind. You don't know when it's coming. You don't know where it's going. No one guides it and directs it, but you see its effects. It comes and moves. So we have Jesus there kind of using in that a metaphor. He's also kind of talking about how the Holy Spirit is an invisible spirit. He's like the wind. You can see his actions, but you can never see him. He's invisible. So really the two biblical proofs we have is we have John 4, God is a spirit, and then we have attestation that God is invisible. And so that's really all we have, at least in terms of like an explicit, here's how we know God is uh, spirit. Now the reason this can be confusing to a new Christian or new Bible readers is because the Bible is filled with what we call anthropomorphic language. If you recall, we've talked about this before, but anthropomorphic language is a figure of speech, so it's non-literal uh, which ascribes human characteristics to non-human things. So, you know, if my wife is baking a pie and I walk in the kitchen, I smell it, and I say, oh, that pie is calling my name, right? That's anthropomorphism. The, the pie is not actually saying anything. The pie is not speaking my name. But I'm attributing a human capability to the pie to make a poetic point. And the Bible does this with God all over the place. The Bible speaks of God as having human body parts, as having human qualities. Just a couple examples, a few. Stretch out your hand from on high, rescue me, deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners. For my eyes are on all their ways, they are not hidden from my face, nor is their wrongdoing concealed from my eyes. Thus says the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. All right, if we were to take these literally, God sounds a lot like a man. He's got hands, he's got eyes, he's got a face. And he must have a body because you can't, he needs to sit on a throne and he must have feet and legs in order to rest his feet on a footstool. And we could make examples abound. So what's interesting is we actually have more, many, many, many more Bible verses that ascribe body parts to God than we have Bible verses that deny body parts, right? We've only got a handful of texts that say he's invisible or he's spirit, but we have a lot that talk about eyes, ears, and stuff. And so that's why some of these arguments we're going to get to are really important so we know which has what we call interpretive priority. When Jesus says God is spirit, when the Bible calls God invisible, should that tell us to interpret these non-literally or should these tell us to interpret those non-literally, right? Like what has um, advantage and the arguments we're going to get to are why we give advantage to the spirit text. But before we do that, I want to do a couple things on the anthropomorphic language Number one, why, does, why would the Bible speak this way? Like, why would God run the risk of confusing us? If he is spirit and he wants us to know he's spirit, then why would he have filled the Bible with all of these texts about him having hands and arms and a strong right arm and even having feathers and wings? And why does he talk like that? Well, there's a couple reasons. Um, number one, anthropomorphisms condescend to our weakness. They help us understand you at the beginning of this class, and I don't at all mean this insultingly because I, I didn't have anything better, 
we're unable to even define the word spirit. So how much more difficult would the Bible be if God did not speak to us in condescending carnal physical terms? If he only spoke to us in precise, metaphysical, academic terms, we just, I I don't think we would understand who God is. I don't think we would be able to grasp that. And even those terms are still bound by a physical human language. So even they would still fall short. The, the purpose of anthropomorphism is they just help us understand what he's actually getting at. So when God says, nothing is hidden from my eyes, that's just a helpful way for us to understand that somehow, some way, metaphysically, God sees all things. He's aware of everything that's happening. Not that he literally has eyes. As a matter of fact, if he literally had eyes, he wouldn't be able to see all things. <laughs> it's because he doesn't have eyes that he is able to actually be aware of all things. Um, So all of the anthropomorphisms are just a helpful tool for us dumb human creatures to to barely start understanding who God is. He's he's giving us tools to help us understand that. Another one that I put is it also just adds beauty and poetry to the Bible. Um, I would be willing to submit that if the Bible just read like a metaphysics textbook, we would not nearly be as excited to come in on Sunday mornings and hear from the Word of God, to open it up and study it. I mean, if the Bible was just like a science book or a logic book, that would just, oh my goodness, that would be terrible. But one of the amazing things about the Bible is its beauty and its poetry and its symmetry. So this just adds a depth of beauty to the Bible, right? I would much rather God say, like, uh, like, like a hen gathers her chicks beneath her wings, so shall I gather you. I would rather hear that than God say something along the lines of, I shall keep watch over you from enemies. Like that's, that both are encouraging. I'll take both of them. But there's just something a little bit more n- impactful and nurturing about the former. But no, I don't think God is actually a hen who actually has wings, right? So it's, we're thankful that God has given us this anthropomorphic language. Now, unfortunately, there are people who have taken it too far. There was a sect, a, heret- a heretical sect in the fourth century uh, that actually had a small little uprising during the Reformation. Um, John Calvin and some of the other reformers had to refute these, this small uprising of people called anthropomorphites that actually did take these passages literally. And they claimed that God had human, he has a human body. He is not a spirit. He actually has a human body. And their main text for that was Genesis 121. And who knows off the top of their head what Genesis 120, I mean, sorry, 127 says. And who off the top of their head thinks they might know what's Genesis 127? Specifically, don't look it up. Just think, what does God say very early on in Genesis that is really, really important? It's, it's something that everyone has memorized. Bingo. I, will, I shall let us make man in our image. And the argument from that is that means that if we're made in God's image, then he has a physical image that we represent. So God must have a head and two legs, and two arms, and a chest, and a heart, and lungs, because that's how he made us, and we're in his image. So they took the imagery of Genesis 1, literally, and said, in order for us to image God, he must have a human body just like us. So the anthropomorphites believed that God had a human body. Now, even though this particular cult group was denied and died off, there is a religion today that are anthropomorphites. Now, we don't call them that. But who knows, does anyone know off the top of their head what modern-day religion is, an, is anthropomorphite-ish? They believe God has body parts. Does anybody know? Mormons. Joseph Smith, Doctrine and Covenants. The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. The Son also, but the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but it's a personage of the Spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. And please don't think that I just proof text here. I've, I've engaged with Mormons a lot. This is actually one of the most important doctrines to the Mormon religion. The Mormons are obsessed with this idea of the idea that men can actually become gods and that you stay married even in the resurrection and that you continue to have children even in the resurrection. So having a body is like the core doctrine to the Mormon religion. And they will say things like, don't you, isn't it nice to have a religion where you can actually be like your father in heaven? Christians are always talking about how they want to be like God, but in your religion, you can't be like God. But in our religion, because God has a body, I can be like him. I can be glorified like him. I can look like him. I can do the things that he can do. I can actually be made 
just like my father. You can never be like your father. That's the kind of language that they use. This is like the, the, the whole key to Mormonism is this understanding that, that God the Father has a body. As a matter of fact, Mormons don't even actually believe in creation. They believe, they'll, they'll, they'll say the word creation, but Mormons believe that all matter is eternal. So they deny what we call the ex nihilo creation. They deny that God put matter from nothing. He created matter from nothing. They argue that matter is eternal and what God did was form it. So it was, the matter has always been here of the universe. The physicalness has always been here in the universe. But what God did was order it and structure it and, and make it beautiful. So it's like, imagine just having a million Lego pieces laying on the floor and then some kid comes in and builds, builds a beautiful city. That's what they say God did. The matter was just everywhere and God formed it. Um, but I could go on and on. The, the idea that, by the way, and Mormons also believe that every one of us is eternal. That you existed with your body beforehand and what happened when God created the world was we all got together with Jesus and Satan and God offered to them to have this plan for humans to come to earth and forget about their eternal state. And Jesus thought that was a good idea and Satan didn't, so they fought and they went with Jesus' idea. So Mormons believe that your body, you existed with your body before you were born and God sent you to earth with your same body and you forgot your primordial state, and then your goal is to get back to that and re-remember it. So Mormons have a lot of problems, and it all begins with this idea that God the Father has a physical body. So they do actually take those texts about eyes and ears. They take them very, very literally. So why don't we? We already started, I, you know, they have really bad interpretations of those texts of God being invisible and God being spirit. Um, but we have a lot of other reasons why this doctrine actually matters a lot and why we would want to very, very strongly affirm that God is spirit. Um, now, all of these aren't going to be pure reason. They're going to be based on the Bible. But what you'll, what you'll see is it's going to be kind of a combination of logic and scripture. Uh, and this isn't necessarily the strongest one, but I think it's really important. First reason is God uh, demands that we not make images of him. Throughout the Bible, uh, idolatry, the heart of idolatry is creating statues, which is why I personally am not super crazy about the modern evangelical fad of calling everything an idol. Like football's your idol, eating's your idol. Uh, I think that actually, I understand what it's getting at, and it's true, it is possible for, for us to put these things over God. But I think that's why in the evangelical world we've really lost the absolute abomination of making physical carved images because we've just made everything an idol. Like I just want to say, no, football is not an idol. Idols are actual carved images. They're actual imagery of God and God hates it. God hates images of himself. Um, it's, it's very clear, obviously, in Exodus, it's one of the Ten Commandments not to make a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Exactly. That's, that's part of the logical argument. Part of why God does not want us to make an image of him is because the second you begin to make an image, you've already misrepresented him. Whatever image you make of God doesn't look like him because he doesn't look like anything, right? So every image of God is limiting him, is insulting him, and it's misrepresenting him. And so the fact that he says no images is his way of telling us, I'm not an image, there's, there's nothing to make an image of. You can't make an image of a spiritual thing. That's why every image of God is insulting. And so this is why, um, well, I'll, I'll wait for the end. Bill, go ahead. The other thing it does is if I can make an image of it, then I'm superior to it. Right, there's also part of that. Paul, Paul brings that up in the book of Acts. He makes fun of the Greeks because he says, you guys, you create these gods out of, out of idols, but then uh, what happens your God, or no, I'm forgive me, it's not Paul. It's, um, it's, it's an early document we have from Justin Martyr. It's one of the earliest apologetic works we have. And Justin Martyr makes fun of the Romans by telling them that exact point. He says, it's, isn't it ironic that you have these gods that you worship? But notice that your gods had to be created by craftsmen. So doesn't it make the craftsmen better than your gods? And he says, and here's what's funny. I know the craftsmen. Yeah. They're horrible guys. Yeah. And he goes on and talks about how they're like pedophiles and how they've been divorced 10 times and they sleep with women all the time. And they're like, those are your gods. Those are your real gods because they're the maker of your gods and they're the sustainers of your gods. They have to polish them. They have to keep them, right? He makes that exact point. 
So I think there's a lot we can, we can imply from this commandment. But one of the first things we can imply from the commandment about not making an image of God is, uh, and by the way, Mormons break this all the time. They have to because their God has an image. So it's hard not to make an image of the God who is imaged. But because our God does not have an image, we don't make an image of him. And but even like, this is har- even harmless things. Like for example, there's that really famous painting, I don't know who made it, of God touching Adam's finger. Uh, in, in any sane reform society, that would have been burned the second it made its way into a- any city. The reformed were very, very clear. We don't make images of God. And so if you want to do a painting of God touching Adam's finger, we're going to burn it right away because we are called to destroy and tear down idols. And anything that you make of an image of God it needs to be torn down. Because it limits your imagination. Exactly. It limits your... It, it limits God's ability for you to, to think about Him if you put Him in a body. Exactly. Or no matter what it is, it's limiting because we are created in His image, but we don't understand it. Exactly. And, and what we're going to see, it's not just if we put Him in a body, do we limit Him. If He is in a body, He is limited. That's what we're going to see. Uh, another, another proof we have that God is spirit is we know that God has three attributes. So this is where we're going to get into a lot of the other attributes of God. So if you have questions about these, I'd be happy to answer them. But just know we're going to do a whole class on all of these, okay? Um, but you just can't talk about one attribute and not talk about the others. It's just impossible. So God has three famous omnis. He is omnipresent, he is omniscient, and he is omnibenevolent. He is all-loving, he is all-knowing, he is all-powerful. If God had a body, he could not be those things. Or if God, let me put it, let me phrase it differently. If God was a body, he could not be all these things. He couldn't be omniscient because if he's a body, that means he has a brain and his brain is limited in space. Your brain can only be so big and only have so much capacity. So anyone who has a physical finite brain cannot know all things. It's just impossible. It's a contradiction to, for the finite to grasp the infinite. So if God has a brain, then his mind is limited So if the Bible says that God knows all things, you have to believe that he's spirit. There's no other option. If God is omnipotent, then he must be spirit. Because a finite body, same principle here, can only have so much strength. You can only have so much muscle mass, so much speed. You cannot get to the point where you have eternal power, limitless power. You could maybe have a ton of power, maybe way more power than a human being, but you can never have God power. Because finite bodies can only be capable of finite strength, finite skills. So if God is going to be infinite in anything, he can't have a body. And the big one is omnipresence. If, if God is, has a body, he can't be omnipresent, either in his mind or in his whole person. If God had a physical body, then that physical body would be omnipresent, and that means we're all dead. Because there wouldn't be space for us. His, whole, his body would have to take up everything. And then it would be impossible because what we're going to see is bodies are made up of parts and every part would have to take up everything. So how do you have two arms if both of your arms are infinite? There's not space for two arms. It's impossible for a body to be infinite. So if God is a body, rather than God is spirit, if God is embodied, then he's not infinite. He doesn't have infinite knowledge. He doesn't have infinite awareness. He can only be in one place at one time. We have limited him. So these, if you believe the Bible teaches these three things, then you believe the Bible teaches God is spirit by logical deduction, right? He has to be spirit to be these three things. John Gill says this, if God was composed of parts, nor would he be infinite and immense for either of these parts are finite or infinite. If finite, there must be more infinites than one, which implies a contradiction. And that's more of a taste. We're gonna get to that when we talk about God's infinite and eternity. Uh, So here's a huge one, and we're going to build a lot of arguments from this, but God is one. We're eventually going to get to a divine attribute called divine simplicity, and it's the hardest attribute of God to understand. It's way harder to understand than even the Trinity. If you think the Trinity is hard, divine simplicity is way harder to understand than the Trinity. It's it's very, very complicated, so this is going to be a very (laughs) quick overview of simplicity. But essentially, we have this in Scripture— what is called the Jewish Shema. I can actually say it in Hebrew, but I'm not going to. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was like the most important liturgical confession for all of the Hebrews. Orthodox Jews to this day 
have to say this every morning when they wake up. This was the most important doctrinal point for the Jews. Like this easily was the most important Bible verse for the Jewish people. The Lord is one. Now certainly what this meant in context was that there's only one God, which was important for the Jews because they lived in a, in a world where all the nations around them were polytheists. They believed in multiple gods like Mormons. And so this was important to teach that there's only one God. But it's saying much, much more than that. Notice, it is the text emphatically, and look up any English translation. No English translation that you read will ever say something like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, there is only one God. It doesn't say that. It says the Lord is one. It doesn't say there's only one God, but that he himself is one. He is singular. So, what that, so of course that means there can't be more. more so of course that is saying there's only one God. But it's saying more than that. It's saying he is one. What that means is that God doesn't have parts. This is what divine simplicity means. Again, we'll go into deeperness. But God is not made up of parts. And everything that's material has some kind of division or parts. No material thing is truly, totally one. No matter how simple you think something is, it has parts to it. You are not one. You are made up of millions and millions of parts. You could talk about how you have skin and bone and water and spirit. So there's at least four parts to you. But we could break down each one of those into cells. You've got millions of cells. And each one of those cells has a nucleus and proteins. And you are the product of millions and millions and millions of parts. And everything that is physical has division to it. You could take the most simple thing in the world. You could take just a single piece of wood. But guess what? That wood is made up of height, width, length. There's three parts. And then that wood itself is made up of atoms, which have electrons, neutrons, protons. Everything that is material has parts to it. Nothing material, no material thing is one. But the Lord is one, which means he has no divisions and no parts. And so there's a lot. And so, by the way, so now we already know a body is off the table. Because a body, by definition, has parts. You've got two arms and two legs and hips, and you've got bones, and you've got lungs, and you've got hearts. Your body is made up of tons and tons of parts. So if God is one, he can't have a body. But we can continue. If God is has, is made up of parts, then he could not be immutable. Who knows what it means to be immutable? That's one of the attributes we're going to get to, but does anyone know what that term means, immutable? Unchanging. Unchanging. God cannot change. How different would your Christianity be if you believed that tomorrow you could wake up and God was more evil than Satan? What if God could lose all of his power tomorrow? What if God could lose his wisdom tomorrow? You see, the core of all religion is believing that God cannot change. But what happens if God has a body? He becomes very changeable. You can cut his arm off. You could cut him and make him bleed. You could cut his head off. You could poke one of his eyes out. You could, he could step, his, step on his toe. And that would immediately bring a change to God. And once you introduce any change at all, you have no ability to stop any change. If God can change in this way, he can change in any way. So if you give God a body, you've lost the ability to believe that I know God will be faithful to me tomorrow. No, you don't. He might change. Because the very essence of who he is is mutable. He can change. If God is immutable, he cannot have a body. Anything that has a body is prone to change. My son looks very, he will, in, in 20 years, Lord willing, he gets there. My son is going to be very, very different than he is now both in the way he looks, in the way he thinks, in the way he acts. My son is not immutable. He is very, very, very mutable. If God has a body, he has potential for drastic change. We don't want that in God. John Gill said, if God was composed of parts, nor would he be immutable, unalterable, and immortal, since what consists of part and depends upon the union of them is liable to alteration and to be resolved into those parts again, and so be dissolved and come to destruction. In short, he would not be the most perfect of beings. Here's what he's saying. Anything that's made up of parts, we could ideally break it down, right? We may not have the power to, but it, it would be at least ideally possible to break God down into his parts. 
right? You ask Bill and Marty, anything you hand to them, I'm sure they could disassemble it if they have the right tools. Let me ask you this. If you had the right tools, could you disassemble God? And if your answer to that is yes, you have a a world of problems because you know what that means? That means you could eventually disassemble him into dissolution, which means he's not immortal. In other words, if God has a body, you can kill him. You can make him cease to exist. Even if you don't have the power to perform the action, the fact that it's logically possible to kill God destroys God, (laughs) right? It's, it, it, if he has a body, he can be broken down into whatever his body parts are, which means he can be dissolved. There's no way God has a body. It's just impossible. Not if you want to affirm that he's actually God. Another one is God's aseity. We briefly talked about this with Steve Lawson. Who remembers what aseity means? This one's probably my favorite proof that he is spirit. He doesn't need us. Doesn't need us. Bingo. Aseity means God is totally independent. God is not dependent upon anything for his life and for his existence. Unlike you and me, we are dependent upon a lot of things. If your heart stops, you're gone. If your brain shuts off, you're gone. If the sun, if the sun explodes, you're gone. If your parents don't conceive, you're not here. Just think of all the different things that you depend upon for your existence. Every single one of your cells in your body is giving you life. Every breath of your lungs is giving you life. We are very, very dependent creatures. And I'm not even talking about the way we're dependent upon God. That's just the physical world. We have no existence unless everything else in our lives is working properly. But what is there that you can take away that would make God cease to exist? What is God dependent on? And we want to say the answer to that is nothing. But if God has a body, he's dependent upon things. What happens if God's heart stops? He's dead. What happens if he gets a bad concussion? He's brain. He turns into a vegetable. So God is no longer an independent being, but he is dependent upon all of the parts that make him who he is. If you take away one of those parts, he's no longer God, which means he is not an independent being. He's a being dependent upon his parts. Does that make sense? So if God has a body, he's not independent. He doesn't have a satiety. He is a very dependent being. He is hoping that his body, that whatever the parts are that make him up, don't fail him. If God was composed of parts, nor would he be independent for what is composed of parts depends on those parts and the union of them by which it is preserved. So you're not just dependent upon the parts, but you're also dependent upon them working in union together. So there's at least two. And then if he has a body, there's way more. This would make God dependent upon many, many things for his existence. And a being that is dependent upon something else for its existence, this is what Bill was talking about, is not God. This is exactly what Bill was saying. If, if, if craftsmen have to make my God, then they're more of God than the craftsman, or than the, than the idol is. So if God's body is giving God life, then his body is more of God than he is. Whatever is giving God life is more God than God is. Right? That's why God cannot be dependent upon anything. If God is dependent upon something, he's not God, and whatever he depends upon is God. But eventually, you're going to get to some independent thing. And if he has a body, then it's not God. (laughs) Right? In other words, it would be impossible for God to be creator if he had a body. Because all multitude begins in and is deduced to unity. So if he had multiple parts... We would have to wonder, uh, what, what, how do we deduce that down to the singular part? Because all multitude began with a singular. Something single produced all multitude. So God must be simple in order to create unity. In other words, who composed God? If God is composed, who composed him? What composed him? What put his parts together? Because parts don't just exist together, they're put together. So we know logically, whatever created is single, is simple, and it created unity. So if God himself is not single, then he is created. That's why Gill says, if God was composed of parts, he would not be eternal and absolutely the first being, since the composing parts would at least coexist with him. And beside, there must be a composer who put the parts together, and therefore must be before what is composed of them, all which is consistent with the eternity of God. 
And even here, he notices he says that the composing parts would at least coexist with him. So if God has a body, then God alone is not the only eternal thing. Every one of his parts is also eternal. Right? If God has two hands, then God alone is not eternal. His pinky is, deter- is eternal. His other pinky is eternal. His, all five of it, he's got ten eternal digits. And how many cells are in the body of God? So we've got billions and billions and billions of eternal things. So now God has competition. He's not the only eternal one, as the Bible calls him. He's not the all eternal one, as the Bible calls him. There are many, many things that are eternal with God because he has body parts that have to be eternal with him. So to put it simply, if God is composed of parts, in short, he would not be the most perfect of beings. We could imagine something greater than God, and we don't want to live in a world where we can even imagine something greater than God. The only way for God to be as great and perfect as we need him to be, he has to be spirit. He has to be spirit. Let me get to some miscellaneous implications, and then, like, how does this affect our lives? This is going to be real fast, and then I'll let you guys share any questions, because I'm seeing confused faces, so I want you to be able to ask questions. But here's what this means. Number one, the image of God obviously then does not refer to our bodies. If a soldier goes to war and steps on a landmine and comes home without his legs, he's not less in God's image. He's not less human. Your, Your physical body is not what's in God's image. It's your soul, your spirit, your reason, your ability to be held responsible for morality. This, these are what, this is what it means to be in the image of God. It means that you're a reasoning spirit that is capable and held accountable to holiness. Lions are not going to be judged on judgment day. They don't have a spirit that is held accountable to morality. They don't have an ability to reason. This is what separates humans from the beasts. Beasts don't reason. Beasts don't have morality. Beasts don't have, therefore, the same kind of souls that we do. So lions are not in the image of God. You are the image of God. But it's not about your body. It's about your spiritual component. What this also means is that God is then beyond your imagination. This means he literally cannot be exaggerated. You can't think highly enough of him. You could never think about God in a certain way, and I, as your pastor, would have to stop you and go, okay, don't be dramatic. He's not, he's not that good, right? He's not that big. You could, you could think about God's goodness every second for the rest of your life, and you would still not get there. Why? Because your thoughts, by definition, are finite. You can't have an infinite thought. You're a finite creature. God is infinite. So that means your thoughts can never outrun God. They can never get bigger than God. So this means you literally can't even imagine how big and good he is. If he had a body, you could. But because he is the eternal, omniscient, all-powerful spirit, because he is infinite, he's not finite, he's infinite, he has no finite component to him, your finite brain can never grasp him. He's bigger than your imagination. A God with a body is not bigger than your imagination. So I just simply ask people, what kind of a God do you want to worship? The one that you can imagine, the one that you can exaggerate, or the one that you can't imagine is unexaggeratable. Another beautiful thing about this is God cannot be defiled. Here's what we mean by this. Some ancient pagans used to deny God's omniscience against the Christians, and you know what their argument was? If God is all present, and I don't mean to be gross here, but you know what that means? That means he's present with me when I'm on the toilet. Isn't that an unholy place for the all-holy God? Is it really okay for God to be in a toilet? There are some horribly disgusting places on the face of the earth. Do you want God present there? Isn't God more holy if he's not present there? So they say God is actually more holy when he's not present in these despicable, disgusting places. But because he's spirit, he can't be defiled. It's not like God can get gook on him. God can't be defiled by the material world because he's outside of it. So we don't have to worry about God being defiled or being unclean or being gross, right? You can't put graffiti on God. You can't make God smell bad, right? So God, we can affirm, yes, he's everywhere. He's in the surgery room where there's blood and there's guts and there's an emergency. He's still present there. He can't be defiled. It's not an unholy place for the undefilable God. Another implication for this is what we call iconoclasm. We already talked about this, but you should not uh, make God an image. 
And this is what Betty was saying. Even in your conceptions, don't make him a man. Don't give him a face. Don't give him a white beard. Don't make him a white guy. Don't make him a man. Don't picture God. Don't do it. Keep in all images of God outside of your mind. And uh, again, that's what, that's what I was going to talk about here with that famous painting. We, we don't want any images of the essence of God. This obviously, we don't have time to talk tonight. It's a whole new ballgame when we talk about the incarnate Christ. I, we just don't have time. We're already running late, so I'm not going to talk about that. But uh, the Reformed argued we shouldn't even be making images of Christ, even if, of the incarnate Christ. That's a debate I don't have settled in my mind, but personally, I lean that direction. I would, I'm not going to lay this down as a law because I don't have the debate settled yet. But the Reformed were very clear that you shouldn't even be making images of Christ. You should not be buying your children Bible books that have Jesus in it. You shouldn't be watching movies with Jesus in it. You shouldn't be making images of God. Jesus is God. Don't make an image of Jesus. There's more debate there since Jesus actually does have an image. People argue we can image the image. Um, but I would say and unless, unless you've given a lot of thought to this debate and you have a good answer, I would encourage you to be safe rather than sorry and to purge from your life all images of Christ. That was a big issue in the late 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. With all the Bibles had all those beautiful Caucasian Jesuses in them. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and people realized, well, he wasn't a Caucasian. Yeah. And, it's, and, and so it opened up the whole thing to... Uh, to the racial issues. But that's the whole, that's the point is you can't, if you create an image of him, you are labeling him as something that he's not. Right. Still. In other words, I don't want Matthew growing up praying to Jesus and having Jim Caviezel in his head. No, no. Right? I don't want Matthew to pray to Jim Caviezel. So you're better off not conceptualizing Jesus than having a false conception of Jesus. That's that's basically what the argument is. And as Bill was saying, it is true that it does, I think the batteries died, it does run us into um, some imp important racial issues. Now there's, there's not just debates about how the whole Western world is racist because they made Jesus white and now people think white skin is the best skin color. But now there's this whole debate of what should Jesus look like? Does he look Arab? Should he look more Arab? Should he look more Jewish? Because we don't know what Jews looked like back then, believe it or not. Jews have become so dispersed since the first century that modern day Jews usually look more like white people. What it, what, did Jesus look more Lebanese? Did he look more like a modern day Jew? We don't know, but the beauty of iconoclasm is you don't have to care. You don't have to care what, how, specifically how dark his skin color was. You just shouldn't picture him at all. You shouldn't have images of him at all. But again, I'm not here to necessarily talk about images of the incarnate Christ. As it comes to at least God the Father, God the Spirit, no images, highly blasphemous. Even if you picture them in your mind, purge your mind of any image of the essence of God because he is the immortal spirit of God. Uh, just the last one, and this is why we offer spiritual worship. This is why God cares more about our hearts than he does about our routines, right? Um, but that's all I have. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to rush through that so fast. We're just already running pretty late. Uh, so that's all I have. Do you have what questions, thoughts, or anything further do you have on all that we talked about? Was there a specific one that you was confusing that you want me to go back to? Because I'm happy to. What's? I'm sorry. Say that again. <laughs> well, um, so. The book that I have that I'm going through, uh, Stephen Charnock, he has a chapter on God is Spirit, and it's about, 80, it's about 40 pages. And then he has a whole chapter to determined to what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth, and it's about twice as long. So that's actually a huge question. I'm not prepared to give a good answer to it tonight. But let me just say, I think that the basics of it is when you look at what the context of the, the Jewish woman, or not the Jewish, she wasn't Jewish, but the, the Samaritan woman he was dealing with, she was very focused on um, having to worship God in a specific location, in a specific temple, and that's what Jesus was sort of refuting. So I think the spiritual part, it doesn't mean that what we do physically doesn't matter at all, but ideally what it means is that God is not ultimately impressed with the carnality of our worship, meaning uh, God doesn't, would never condescend in here and say, you know what, guys, you trying to worship me, but this room's not, doesn't look very holy to me. I mean, where's the gold? Where, where's the art? Where's the beauty? You're just worshiping. You think a plain white room is worthy of the all holy God? He would never do that. 
Um, you can worship God in a mud pit, right? And he's, so I think that what it means is spiritual worship means God is not so much impressed with our ceremonies and our forms as he is with our hearts, right? That, that praise and faith, that our songs are led by faith. Our songs come from love. Our praise comes from faith. So our external forms are coming from spirit. And, and then the truth part is that we're saying true things about God. Like Muslims worship with spirit. They're coming from a place of love. They're coming from a place of praise, but it's false. So it doesn't, so we want to have the true religion, the true ideas of God, and we want to worship him from faith, from our heart, and know that he's not, he's not impressed with our sacrifices. He's impressed with our heart. He's not impressed with how good, how well you sing, whether you hit all the notes. He's impressed with what's causing you to sing, right? That's spiritual worship. Layla. Yeah. Exactly. Yep, and they have to pray a certain amount of times a day, and they have to face the same direction every time they pray. That's physical worship, and God doesn't care about that. Yep. Yeah, idolatry, that's why idolatry is another form of the opposite of spiritual worship. If your worship can only work if it's being channeled through a physical hand-carved idol, that's not Christian worship, right? Um, but yeah, so I, I think that's a basic. It's not nearly complete. Like I said, theologians have written thousands of pages on what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth. So that's a great question. But yeah, I think where we can start with is we, we begin with faith, we begin with love, we begin with praise. And your physical location doesn't really matter. You can worship God in Egypt. It doesn't matter. You don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem anymore. Right. You're back to the question of defining spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're going to spirit and truth, you have to define spirit and truth, and you're back to the same things that you, it's the same dilemma. Right, yeah. Oh, that's right. And in and, and, and addition, yeah, so to some degree, it's impossible to fully define. But you, but you can say, as with spirit, you can say it's not material. Right. I mean, the, the swinging lanterns and guys in robes and big gold things and all that stuff, they can call it, you can call it worship, but in that say, you, you know, you can also call football worship. Yeah. It's, it doesn't have any. Yeah. Meaning. Yeah. And. And, and, we run the danger, and we run the danger of putting our hope in, in carnal things and not spiritual things. And this is why the reformers were so adamant. Now, you, most, most Christians today would even argue the reformers took it too far. But the reformers were hardcore iconoclasts. Because remember, Rome is anti-iconoclasm. Rome is, you have to worship through statues. You have to bow down to statues of Mary. You have to bow down to these statues of Jesus. And so Rome was filled, not just with images of God and images of Jesus and images of Mary, but with all other forms of carnal worship, the incense and bowing and kneeling in the Eucharist. And they have all of these carnal, carnal things and their churches had to be gold laden. There's gold everywhere and the priests are dressed and their hats are four feet tall. Rome Catholicism, and it still is today, but it just became so carnal, carnally minded, that when the reformers in their cities, when they took over, they, number one, they, they vandalized all the churches. They, any window with an image, smashed. Any idol, burned. Any book with pictures, burned. That include Bibles. If your Bible had a picture of Jesus, burned. They destroyed all the idols, and their justification for that came from God's vindicate, God telling the Jewish people, when you go into the Canaanite lands, you will tear down their temples and you will destroy their idols. You will smash their idolatry. You're not going to incorporate them. You're not going to redeem them. You're not going to find another use for them. You're going to destroy them, utterly destroy them. So the, Rome, the reformers did all that and the reformers, the same thing they did with their churches. And so that's why the reformers believed no artwork at all. Like they would love this room. If we, if we try to like start painting the walls, they'd freak out. Because no, we worship God in spirit and truth. You don't need a big pointy hat. You don't need a bunch of gold on the walls. You don't need a golden lantern. You don't need pictures. You don't need images. Worship him in spirit and truth. So a, a big foundational point to it was that, um, you, you know, yeah, you don't have to care so much about, it's not like God doesn't hear your prayers if you don't do this, right? He doesn't care about that, that, that kind of stuff. So the reformers were really big on emphasizing that spiritual worship, which meant, 
Now, to some degree, they maybe took it a little too far. I think it's okay to to want to have a, a sanctuary that says something about your heart for worship. You know, like I wouldn't want to put a playground in our worship ceremony because that says something. So I think the aesthetics of what your room looks like do matter. And I do think we should care about how our worship space looks. But I mean, this is a huge benefit. Think about persecuted churches. They don't have the benefit to build a building. And what, what color paint do we want? And what color chairs do we They just, wherever works, wherever is not going to get us killed. So they're worshiping God under a tree at 4 a.m. And in the Old Testament, that wouldn't have been appropriate because you need to go to the temple. But in the New Testament, we worship in spirit and truth. So God doesn't care if you worship under a tree. So that's, there's, there's, there's a beauty in spiritual worship versus carnal worship. But, it's com- but you're right, it's complex. It's like trying to define spirit itself. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. yeah. That the tree is truer to God's original creation mm-hmm. than what we've imagined. Mm-hmm. I mean, although I like the air conditioning. Yeah. God did tell us to take dominion, though. Buildings are a really cool example of taking dominion. These, these are trees. We've just remodeled them. Anything else? I know it's almost eight, but I still, I would hate for you to, if you had a question about any of the points that we went over to not be able to get that answered. Oh, I think it's very possible. But, um, but here's, here's how we would want to put it, though. Is, yeah, so yes, I would say yes. And that goes back to, remember, Charnock's definition of spirit. Is it something that's not only able to move itself, but can move other things? So yes, God can move you so that you are, you are empirically aware of his presence. But what would be key to understanding, though, is if someone feels the presence of God, that's because God moved him. You cannot go and get him. He can come to you because spirit can move other things. But the infinite cannot cross in, or forgive me, the finite can't cross into the infinite. So you can't go up and make God feel like a certain way. So you have no access to that. But God can certainly, by his spirit, enter into the finite and move. So yes, and I think that's kind of what Jesus was kind of getting at when he described the spirit as being the wind. Like, the spirit has the ability to affect the physical world. Even though he himself is invisible and immaterial, he moves within the material world. And so Jesus said, just like the wind, like even for us, we talk about we can see the wind, but you don't actually see the wind you see what the wind is doing, right? I know that if the tree's doing this, then I know that the wind is powerful. But I'm not seeing the wind, I'm seeing the tree. And that's what Jesus says about the spirit. You never see the spirit, but he changes people and you see that change. And in that sense, you see the spirit, right? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. Yep. So yes, that's the great question. That was going to be my next question. Can you experience? Yeah. But there's a difference between experience and feel and being convicted. I mean, the because satanic beings can also affect your feelings. I would have to. Assume. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and but the but the conviction, the Holy Spirit. I mean, I mean, at least in my life, something's happened several times when I thought, oh, you know, the Lord has. I mean, my eyes were open. Something happened in in conviction or something there, and I assume other people have something like that. No, that's great. It's I, not a physical feeling, but it's like, say, oh. There you are, Lord. I should have seen you, you know, in that. Uh, yeah, correct. Sometimes we don't even really have appropriate language to describe it, but it's not so much like my stomach is feeling conviction. It's my soul. Like my actual soul is what's feeling this. But even feeling might not be the right word for a soul, but we, have no, we don't have another word. Well, we don't have we a don't have soul, so it's not. We don't, exactly. So even we have to anthropomorphize our soul by giving it feelings right? Um, but yeah, I think the key is not that every time you feel conviction, believe it's from the Spirit of God. That's not always the case. But the, the key for this class, though, is just knowing that because God is Im- immaterial doesn't mean he can't have an impact on the material. 
So the fact that God is immaterial doesn't mean he can't convict you, right? So, and again, that's why I meant it's a one-way street. The material doesn't have the ability to cross into the immaterial and find God. But the immaterial does have the ability to make its way into human history. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the spirit in, in human history, moving material world. Yeah, that's right. And that's, again, that goes back to Charnock. A, a spirit has the ability not just to move itself, so God can make his choice. God can move himself, and he's not caused to do that. Like when God does something, something didn't cause him to do that, so he just moves himself. He's, his spirit is self-moving, but it also can move other things. It can heal people. It can cause me to do this. So it moves itself, and it moves other things. Yeah, that's right. A material has the inability to, by itself, material can't do either of those things. A rock can't move itself nor move something else. And even your body, if I take your soul from your body, your body doesn't make decisions anymore. Your body doesn't move or move other things. It's only because your body is intertwined with a soul that you can self-move and then move other things. Right? So.